0: Hello, this is Michael Melfi, and welcome to the Be Investable podcast, a series where I speak with innovative individuals who share their insights about what it means to be investable. Welcome back to another episode of the Be Investable podcast. My name is Michael Melfi, and today we're inviting Jordan Harbinger onto the show with us. Jordan was once referred to as the Larry King of podcasting. He is a Wall Street lawyer turned talk show host a social dynamic expert, and an entrepreneur. Jordan, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to come join us uh, here on the Be Investable podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: And, you know, as we were talking about, I, I love asking the question, I'm going to ask you, what is the first time you made money and how did you do it?
1: Yeah, so I was thinking about this when I got booked here to talk with you, and I just was, it's a little scary to dig into the past like that, I think, for a lot of us. And so, I looked at some of the things that I did, and the one thing that was real money for me at the time was when I was a kid, as you might expect. I was living in uh, South... I was living right near you, actually, in Michigan, and... The kids around me they couldn't get fireworks but the one thing they did have was their parents money. So I would go up to my cottage which was like this kind of rednecky area of Michigan and the neighbors always had bottle rockets and M80s <laughs> and all this stuff that all the stuff that's illegal now, right? right? And then when they made that illegal in Michigan, they would drive to Ohio and get it. And uh, these are people that couldn't be bothered to go to the store and get real food, but if they needed bottle rockets and M80s they would drive to Ohio. And they would buy it, and then I would go across over the street or next to the lake and throw them in the lake. And they would go, yeah, take some home with you. You know, we have a ton. So I'd bring them home, and I would sell them to the other school kids, and you'd be surprised what a packet of bottle rockets will go for in Birmingham, Michigan in 1989.
0: (laughs) I love that story. That's awesome. Was there something from that experience that you took away or an attribute you learned that you think carries forward today?
1: Yeah, you know what? Not just the sales skill set and things like that, but what I realized was, You don't really have to market that hard if you have a product that is hard enough to obtain. And so this is just really simple economics, right? Scarcity really affects supply. But also, not just scarcity, there's something about esoteric knowledge or esoteric or hard-to-acquire things that maybe have a little bit of a taboo attached. And you would think that would have led me into maybe a different industry, but it did lead me into the social skills industry where I am now in the broadcasting and interviewing sort of set up an industry that I'm in now and really did change the trajectory of my career because what it did was essentially show me that, look, if something sells itself – and in theory doesn't hurt other people. Fireworks can burn you, but it's not, you know, it's not drugs. (laughs) Uh, Then you don't have to market it. You don't have to worry about it. People will spread the word for you and there's just something irresistible about it that people just can't quite say no to. You
0: know, and then I'm gonna skip forward. You did a demonstration, you talked at DEF CON and talked about a Robin Sage experiment where how easily a person can be connected with someone who they may not be what they claim to be. Can you share a little I mean, I, th- I think that kind of fits to what you're talking about and your, just your social experiences. Can you talk a little about that?
1: Sure, yeah. So what I did at, when I was presenting at DEF CON, before that, they, I said, what do I need to do to present at DEF CON? And they said, you need, to, you need to do something that gets people's attention. And I said, oh, well, all right, I don't really know how to do that. That's very vague. Thanks for that. But what I realized was that a lot of people... And this is years ago. This is well before it became super obvious with the whole like Me Too thing and things like that. I pulled kind of a KGB Cold War trick on a lot of defense contractors and and uh, even some military officers and, and political folks. What I did was I created the persona of a female, and I used my actual assistant in real life. I used my actual assistant's profiles on LinkedIn and other social media, and I modified them to show that she was an engineering student. And so I was doing, using her profile, I was doing outreach for informational interviews, asking for places to live and move into and rent and educational opportunities and job opportunities, really doing everything right like you should as a student. But the fact that she was an attractive female... And the fact that the outreach was so effective because of that, I noticed that a lot of the people that I was contacting, obviously the men, there was just a little hint of tension there that I was able to turn to an advantage. And so I, I actually got quite a few of these guys talking about where their offices were, what their, if they were working in a place that was not supposed to be you know, publicly sort of declared the project, uh, what they were working on, inside information about the company. I had them calling her from their company phone so that I would get their office phone number and then I would do something called spoof where I pretend to be calling from that number which is really simple technology. Most people don't realize Caller ID systems rely on the phone to tell them what phone number they're calling from. You can program your caller ID number into something like Skype or another voice over IP phone, and it will say that it's from that number. And so I used to call my friends from, like, the White House or from their mom, and it would be me, right? And So what I did is I would call other employees of other branches of, say, North or Grumman, from what they thought was an office number of Northrop Grumman as it would show up on caller ID. And I would use that to get other information about the company. And I mapped out what I was doing and eventually presented this to DEF CON and, of course, to some of these companies as well. And they were pretty concerned about how easy it was for somebody who basically just had a photo and borrowed a a voice of a young 20-something female and enough knowledge of basic mechanical and electrical and other types of aerospace engineering to get inside information from contractors that have top-secret clearances or beyond. And that was the presentation. And I thought this was going to take something like six months to do, and I truthfully did the majority of this work. When you condense it all together in under 12 hours, including all the research, all the phone calls, all the outreach, all of the meetings, and hundreds and hundreds of contacts, I did it all in what uh, one person, in essentially two working days. So imagine what a Chinese... Social social engineering, or so, or if, not Soviet. That doesn't exist. But Russian or other unfriendly social engineering professionals who actually know what they're doing, and there's dozens of them. Imagine what they can do if it's their full time job. If I could do that in 12 hours, so that was very disconcerting for the defense contractors and for some of the other people involved.
0: I would say so. Uh, that you definitely opened their eyes after that one, and and, and we're going to talk in a second about. The podcast and now the show but i, I gotta ask you because i read about it and i don't know i had never met anyone or spoke with anyone and let alone had anyone on the show that had been kidnapped so can you at least just share with us oh, yeah. a little of, about that
1: yeah so essentially what happened for the first time i was in mexico i was 20 years old i lived in a kind of a crummy area of mexico city and i got into a fake taxi And when the taxi driver was driving away, I knew where I was going. He didn't think I knew where I was going. I knew where I was going. I'd been living there for a while. And he started to take me to a place that was further and further away. And there was a physical altercation. And at the time, I was 20. I lived in Mexico. I had a part-time job at a nonprofit. And in my spare time, I ate carne asada and worked out at the gym. (laughs) So I was in pretty good shape. And he was 50-something, and he'd probably been sitting down in a car driving a cab for 20 or 30 years so that physical altercation ended up with me coming out on top and escaping and uh so like i said look it it sounds more exciting than it was i'm just thankful that it happened when it did because now they have mobile phones you know they they can really he couldn't call for any help or backup you know to come out and meet the car and he had driven me to a place where he was threatening to get out of the car and go get his friends you know they're gonna take you in the house but he couldn't call them in advance and, and now i'm thinking uh-oh with mobile phones that would have ended quite differently i think but then again maybe i would have called the police from my mobile phone and who knows maybe they would have actually showed up but then again mexico city kind of the wild west especially in 2001
0: wow okay well we're glad we're glad you made it out of that one and you're okay I do want to ask, I want to move forward. So you co-founded the Art of Charm, podcast in 2006. and 2007, you were picked up by Cirrus to be a talk show host. That had to be an awesome experience. you want to share a little about what that was like and what it took to get there?
1: Sure. So it's really, again, it was sort of Forrest Gump type situation. I now run the Jordan Harbinger Show, but my earlier show we had been doing for about a year. I moved to New York because I was a Wall Street attorney, and I was doing my show just as a hobby at the time. And a friend of a friend had gotten a guest spot on a show on what at the time was Maxim Radio. And he didn't want to drive up from Virginia to do it because he'd already done it once and it didn't really sell any books. He'd be an author. And he said, why don't you go and do it? And so he pitched them and we showed up and we did the guest spot. And the hosts, They kind of got along with us pretty well, and we did what we thought was a pretty decent job. And the station manager came down and said, yeah, you know, we were just running an air check, which means listening live to the show just to see what it would be like. We're just running an air check. We wanted to see how it was doing, and you guys did really well. How often have you guys done radio appearances? And I said, well, you know, very rarely, but I have this thing called a podcast. Do you know what that is? And nobody did except for the station manager. And He goes, yeah, I've heard of these. I tried to find out how to get them, and I said, look, I'll walk you through it. So I I helped him find podcasts. They weren't even available, I I think, on his phone at the time. He had to do it on his computer. And I showed him how to listen to the show. And I went home, and two weeks later, I followed up. I didn't get an answer. A week later, I followed up again. And he said, sure, why don't you come down again and uh, do another spot? So I came in, did another spot, and I said, what do you think? And he goes, it's great, and I've also been listening to your podcast. I really think you should have your own show. I'm serious. And so that was the beginning of the show on satellite radio. They gave us a a slow hour, I would imagine, at around 11 a.m. And then we did that for a while, and then we moved up to the evening drive every Friday for two hours and did our live show at that time. And so that was sort of a jump in with both feet method because, you know, at the time, had we just showed up and done the radio, I don't think they would have thought there's a show here. But we just happened to have really good timing and a very unique topic that nobody was talking about. And so we were able to do the show, and they happened to be listening at the right time as well, and they offered us a slot, and that was that. So it was kind of like the luck equals preparation, meeting opportunity kind of thing in action.
0: Absolutely. I, I share that all the time with the entrepreneurs and emerging companies we talk with about what luck really is. It's just preparation, meeting opportunity. And, you know, during the show you had some really great featured guests from Shaquille O'Neal, Tony Hawk, Tim Ferriss, Gary Vanderchuk, you had Seth Godin. Was there any one moment, or maybe could you could you talk us a couple really ridiculous moments you had on the show that you want to share?
1: Sure. Yeah, one that comes to mind was I interviewed Larry King, and this is a long time ago. Larry and I are friends now, so I I, I read them about this, but I gotta be gotta throw in the caveat that I just had originally caught him on a bad day, and. So the first, my first encounter with him as an interviewer, or as an interviewee, I should say, he was definitely not in the mood. And I remember talking with his wife and his assistant shortly before that, and they were like, he's in the mood, don't take it personally. And he came on, and I really, he was literally eating during the interview, and he didn't really kind of know that we were doing the actual interview at the time. I think he thought it was a pre-interview, and in the middle he goes, well, we should have enough, Right. And I thought he meant we're done with the show, but I think what, in retrospect, what he meant was this should be enough preparation for you to prepare for an interview. But of course, I was a little bit green at the time, so I just shrugged and said, "I guess so." And then we had to edit around it and around him eating and everything. And we we aired the show, and people were just appalled that he was eating during the interview. And I, I twenty twenty hindsight. I think he thought that was our preparatory meeting and not the actual interview, which is totally understandable because it was a phoner. And years later, he interviewed me on his show and, and, uh, twice, and I interviewed him again, and it all worked out really well. And I remember telling him about this, and he goes, yeah, I just had no clue that that was how you do these interviews because he was used to sitting in a studio across from the guest with the lights and the microphone. He was like, I just thought we were talking on the phone. You know, and so <laughs> that to me was just a very funny generational Kerfuffle that ended up being kind of a funny point in my career. Another funny point in my career that also result that also kind of was a, involves the guest eating for some reason, and that's what happens. Busy people eat during interviews. I was supposed to interview Russell Brand, the comedian and they had the last minute they canceled it and i said well i'm already in la i flew down here i booked a hotel i set up all the gear i've got the studio and they said oh okay we're feeling pretty bad there's no way he can make it to your studio and i said well okay where is he and they said well he's at cbs and i said okay where should i park and they went oh uh okay so you here just come to the garage and we'll do it you might have to do it in his limo limousine and i said i don't i don't care that's fine i can handle it So I show up and they said, good news, we got you a room. And I said, oh, perfect. So I show up at at, uh, CBS and I can't say which show or which set, but I thought they were going to put us in the main set. Nope. They put us in a makeup room that was about the size of an airline bathroom. And (laughs) they said, he's got to eat his lunch while you do this. And I said, no problem. So I did the interview with Russell Brand while he's intermittently taking a bite of sandwiches. We're basically almost sitting. I mean, our knees were touching at points during the interview because we were that close together. And, uh, and in the middle of it, he puts the sandwich down. Really, he almost throws it down on the table. And he goes, you know what? You're pretty good at this. I'm going to stop eating. And I thought, I guess that's a compliment.
0: <laughs> you won. <laughs>
1: I won. I won versus the sandwich. Maybe it just wasn't a very good sandwich. (laughs) That is
0: absolutely great. That's absolutely great. I, before we hop in this next question, I want to ask you. So you've had the chance to talk to some amazing people. People are at the top of their game in any profession, that from from sports to to business to across the board in what they do. Is there any attribute or attributes that you see in them that just really stick out that allow them to be the top performer or to be successful in what they do?
1: Yeah, you know, one thing I've noticed about everybody that's really great at what they do is they. They do all of the fundamental they still stick to the fundamentals. So, and I'll give you an example. When I first started doing the show, I would prepare and I would outline and I would think of all the little points I wanted to say and I put it in a bullet point format and I do this whole show flow document. And my co-host was kind of not into that and he didn't like to do it and he didn't want to ever spend the time to do it. And he never really spent any time preparing. And I thought, well, if he's not going to do that and the show's turning out okay, I'm not going to do that. So. For years, I ditched my prep methods and my prep sort of formula, and I just went with it. And I thought, I'm really getting away with this. This is great. The show's going fine. And then seven years into doing the show, I got an interview with a, an author that I really admire, Robert Greene. And I said, uh, you know what? I want to make sure I really nail this one. So I read his books. Again, and I took notes, and I did a whole show flow prep, But at the end of the interview, which I thought went really well, he said, hey, you know, you're really good at this. I do a lot of media, and you were really prepared. And I said to myself, oh, crap, I've never really done this. Maybe I should start, because I thought I was getting away with it, and I know a lot of professionals that are on the lower tier of their industry, and they'll go, oh, I'm just going to sort of wing it. I'm going to be fine. What I realized was beginners prepare a lot. Intermediate, we often think, oh, I don't need to do that. I got it down. I'm good. I'm fine. But true professionals that are really excellent at their craft, they prepare more than anybody. They spend time on the fundamentals. It's really the arrogance of the kind of intermediate novice that says, I don't need to do this anymore. And what I found is that's wrong. And I spent years and years and years thinking I was faking it. And what I'll, I'll tell you is when I go to an interview with somebody like Shaquille O'Neal or when I talk to somebody like Howard Stern, they're more prepared than anybody And the reason is because they went through the phase where they went, as a beginner, they're going to struggle through it, and they'll prep. And they probably went through a phase where they thought, I got this, and they got put on their you-know-what a couple of times. And then they went, oh, maybe I do need to keep going to the gym. Maybe I do need to keep reading the books. Maybe I do need to keep going over the notes. And that's how it works. That's the truth. You really can't ignore the fundamentals. And I found that all true professionals really do stick to that. They don't They don't mail it in just because they think they can, because they realize they can't.
0: Jordan, I, I absolutely love that and, and, and so glad you shared that because it, it's such an important set of attributes or way of explaining how, how the best are really the best. And it's, it's, it's great to hear you share that based on your experiences. I, there's a follow-up to that. I'd love to ask you, how do you define success in your life at this point in your career?
1: For me, success is really making sure that I'm, and I know this sounds a little cheesy, but I don't care. Success for me is making sure that I'm enjoying what I'm doing at least most of the time. I'm not gonna. Kid, I don't think anybody should kid themselves that it's like if you don't like what you're doing, you should always quit. And there's always that there's that old cliche: if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Anything that you do will at some point turn into a job. The trick is making sure that you like it more than you don't like it. And I know that that sounds a little bit obvious, but for me, making sure that most of the day is spent doing something I enjoy, that's important. And you're always going to have that one-third, that 25%, or even that 20% of where you go, I really don't want to do this, but I have to. It's part of the game. And if you think you outgrow that, well, you're wrong. Every, even A-list celebrities and presidents have to do media and press conferences that they're not crazy about, right? Or they have to do social Absolutely. media engagement. There's always something that's going to be a part of what you do that you don't love that's just part of being successful at what you do. And that, that, that happens up until the day you just retire and you cash out. And so for me, making sure that I'm interviewing great people on the Jordan Harbinger show, making sure that I'm teaching people great skills in our courses and things like that, that works out really well for me. And those days where I spend all of my time talking to lawyers and bankers and doing, you know, email tasks or something, then I know, uh oh, I've got to hire somebody to do this or I've got to figure out why I generated this much. Uh, type of activity that I really don't like and see if there's something that can be done about it. Because I think most of us, we wake up one day and we go, oh, I've hated my job for like a decade. Oops. You know, and that's not a good way to live. It's like this living by default. And I think it's dangerous because we wake up one day and we go, oh, I'm depressed. How did that happen? And the reason is because we weren't paying attention.
0: I appreciate that. And, and and it's such a such an important point to point out to people that it is you just kind of get stuck and we don't get out of these challenging situations and we, and we just get settled for mediocrity, I guess is the best way to say it. And I guess along those lines is, I mean, you've obviously alluded to you've had challenges in your career. Was there was there any one challenge that was that sticks out more than the others? And if so, what did you learn by that?
1: Hmm. Well, recently I left my old company and my partners and started the Jordan Harbinger show from scratch. Wasn't taking the website, the intellectual property, the email list, the social media accounts, nothing. I started from scratch, and honestly, that was terrifying. But what I realized was since I had been building and maintaining relationships for 10 years, I took the most valuable thing with me that I could, which is my network. And I think a lot of us, we spend a lot of time and a lot of money building up our email list or our website or this or that or the other thing but the one thing that nobody can take away from you that you can't lose in a house fire or or that you don't need insurance policy to cover is your relationships with other people and it's also fortunately or unfortunately the only thing that you can't create when you need it you have to dig the well before you're thirsty and thankfully i had been practicing a lot of what i preach but i will say that most entrepreneurs and even even me look you know, I should have done more of it. Thankfully, I did the amount that I did. But there is literally, there's almost literally not a such thing as too much when it comes to good, solid, honest relationships, authentic relationships with people that care about you. Because when I had to restart the Jordan Harbinger Show, I was able to call hundreds of people and say, "Hey, I got this new initiative. I need as much publicity as I get. I need help with this. I need help with that." And I had people. Jumping over, the, climbing over the wall to help out with things that, honestly, I thought I was going to have to do on my own. And so instead of having a five-year recovery and restart, I'm looking at something maybe like an 18- to 24-month period where I will then be ahead of where I was before. That
0: is, that is absolutely awesome. And and then before we wrap up, I, I want to ask you, I was, I was doing a little bit of research before we got on, and you were talking about one of the most common questions you get is about how to making a lasting impression about how to be unforgettable. And I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners maybe a little bit about that topic and, and and how you do go about leaving a lasting impression.
1: Sure. So I actually have a whole lot about networking and relationship development on advancedhumandynamics.com, which is one of the websites that I have. There's a course called Level One that's, that's free And I want to make sure That people are into that Because I think it's Game-changing stuff But what I will say is A lot of folks When they're looking to make A great, unforgettable impression They're thinking Okay, I've got to wear This zany thing Or I've got to say This crazy thing And jump through Oops, And make it happen The reason that people Are unforgettable Is not necessarily What they do in the moment It's what they do afterwards So if I meet you Somewhere I might make a Decent, hopefully positive First impression But you're not thinking That guy was incredible What happened The way that we do this is what happens later, where I email you in a timely manner, and I follow up, and I and I find out what you're looking for to do with your personal life or your business, and then I introduce you to other people in my network without the expectation of anything in return that might be able to help with that, and then I use systems that I teach, the advanced human dynamic systems and things like that, to keep in touch over a period of months and years so that I'm able to consistently provide value by introducing you to other people that can help you and your mission. That's what makes somebody unforgettable, and so- Super valuable. It's not, oh, he complimented my cufflinks, and I'll always remember that. That stuff is elementary and sort of tacky and hacky and really doesn't work that well. It's not that it doesn't work at all. It's just that you're not going to prefer or do business with somebody or like someone more because they made a cool comment. When you met them, you're going to prefer, you're going to know, like, and trust the person who spent the next several weeks, months, or even years following up, keeping in touch, and doing that part correctly.
0: Awesome. And before we go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. This is the Be Investable podcast. When you hear Be Investable, you hear that word. What does that mean to you?
1: I love the idea of being investable. And what I think that means to me, at least in this particular moment, is the, the concept of skill stacking. So when I, whenever I have an opportunity, and even when I was younger, I, I wish I was more cognizant of this. I heard, a, actually, I'll start with this different example. When I was doing my Friday show where I answer fan mail and like letters to to me for advice, one of the kids said, "Oh, I'm stuck working for this business. It's the only one in my town that had a job for the summer. I work at this dumb movie theater. I really hate it. I want to do something else. I, I feel like it's a waste of time. It's driving me crazy. I love the concept of skill stacking." Where I said, "Look." You're not going to be a career movie theater usher or projectionist, clearly. You know, you're interested in computer science. Try to learn as much as you possibly can about business cash flow, how the box office works how people book tickets online, the inefficiencies in the system, managing other people, being part of a team, looking at these little sub skills in a very conscious way, not just going through the motions because you have a minimum wage job, learning to be really good at these particular small skills. These are things you will then bring to you when you're working at Microsoft in five or 10 years. So any little skill that you can get, I another kid was stuck in a family farm, but it was in France, and he was miserable and lonely. And I said, you have a very unique opportunity right now to learn about dairy and to learn French. Huh. If you don't learn those two things, the dairy seems random, right? But it doesn't really matter, because at some point, skills handling livestock may never come into play, but it's an education, and you're front and center. You can get interested in it, but mostly... You should come back darn near fluent in French if you're spending four months in France with French people working on a family farm and talking all day. You should not rely on English, and that really gives it gives people a purpose. And when you stack the knowledge of French with the knowledge of dairy farm industry in Europe, you have a marketable skill. When you start to combine that with computer engineering or something else, because that's how these brilliant multi millionaire people that I meet all the time end up falling into. And I put that in air quotes. Into these businesses. They went and they got a law degree, then they learned all they could about agriculture because they had a job doing that for an agro company that they thought they hated. Then they ended up getting transferred to Germany and becoming fluent in German, and then they had a software background. So they end up making a legal software program for agribusiness in Europe, and they're making a hundred million dollars a year because that skill stack is so unique that they were the only person who saw that opportunity. So that's what makes somebody investable. I love it.
0: That is absolutely awesome. With that, Jordan, I want to thank you so much so much for your time and for joining us on the be investable podcast thank you well there you have it the latest episode of the be investable podcast until next time stay investable in the meantime check out our magazine by going to www.getinvestable.com forward slash magazine and subscribe for a free issue additionally you can find more great content through our amazing media partners such as cranes business detroit huffington post michigan business network mishapreneur smart hustle magazine and startup nation thanks again for tuning in and we look forward to talking with you soon